0: Chapter Twenty, Part Eight of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty The Hundred Years' War. Philip the Sixth and John the Second. Part Eight. Whilst Philip, with all speed, was on the road back to Paris with his army as disheartened as its king, and more disorderly in retreat than it had been in battle, Edward was hastening, with ardor and intelligence, to reap the fruits of his victory. In the difficult war of conquest he had undertaken, what was clearly of most importance to him was to possess on the coast of France, as near as possible to England, a place which he might make, in his operations by land and sea, a point of arrival and departure, of occupancy, of provisioning, and of secure refuge. Calais exactly fulfilled these conditions. It was a natural harbour, protected for many centuries past by two huge towers, of which one, it is said, was built by the Emperor Caligula, and the other by Charlemagne. It had been deepened and improved, at the end of the tenth century, by Baldwin the Fourth, Count of Flanders, and in the thirteenth by Philip of France, called Tufskin, Hurepel, Count of Bologna, and in the fourteenth it had become an important city, surrounded by a strong wall of circumvallation, and having erected in its midst a huge keep, furnished with bastions and towers, which was called the castle. On arriving before the place, September 3, 1346, Edward immediately had built all around it, says Froissart, houses and dwelling-places of solid carpentry, and arranged in streets as if he were to remain there for ten or twelve years, for his intention was not to leave it winter or summer— whatever time and whatever trouble he must spend and take. He called this new town villeneuve la hardy and he had therein all things necessary for an army, and more too, as a place appointed for the holding of a market on Wednesday and Saturday, and therein were mercer's shops and butcher's shops, and stores for the sale of cloth and bread, and all other necessaries. King Edward did not have the city of Calais assaulted by his men, well knowing that he would lose his pains, but said he would starve it out, however long a time it might cost him, if King Philip of France did not come to fight him again and raise the siege. Calais had for its governor, John de Vienne, a valiant and faithful Burgundian knight, the which, seeing, says Froissart, that the King of England was making every sacrifice to keep up the siege, ordered that all sorts of small folk, who had no provisions, should quit the city without further notice. They went forth on a Wednesday morning, men, women, and children, more than seventeen hundred of them, and passed through King Edward's army. They were asked why they were leaving, and they answered, because they had no means of living. Then the king permitted them to pass, and caused to be given to all of them, male and female, a hearty dinner, and after dinner two shillings apiece, the which grace was commended as very handsome, and so indeed it was. Edward probably hoped that his generosity would produce, in the town itself, which remained in a state of siege, a favourable impression, but he had to do with a population ardently warlike and patriotic, burghers as well as knights. They endured for eleven months all the sufferings arising from isolation and famine, though from time to time fishermen and seamen in their neighborhood, and amongst others two seamen of Abbeville, the names of whom have been preserved in history, Morant and Mestriel, succeeded in getting victuals into them. The king of France made two attempts to relieve them, On the twentieth of May, thirteen forty seven, he assembled his troops at Amiens, but they were not ready to march till about the middle of July, and as long before the twenty third of June a French fleet of ten galleys and thirty-five transports had been driven off by the English. John de Vienne wrote to Philip, Everything has been eaten, cats, dogs, and horses, and we can no longer find victual in the town unless we eat human flesh. If we have not speedy succor, we will issue forth from the town to fight, whether to live or die, "'for we would rather die honorably in the field than eat one another. "'If a remedy be not soon applied, you will never more have letter from me, "'and the town will be lost as well as we who are in it. "'May our Lord grant you a happy life and a long, "'and put you in such a disposition that, if we die for your sake, "'you may settle the account therefore with our heirs.'" On the 27th of July Philip arrived in person before Calais. If Froissart can be trusted, he had with him full two hundred thousand men, and these French rode with banners flying as if to fight, and it was a fine sight to see such a puissant army. And so, when they of Calais, who were on the walls, saw them appear, and their banners floating on the breeze, they had great joy, and believed that they were going to be soon delivered. But when they saw camping and tenting going forward, they were more angered than before, for it seemed to them an evil sign. The marshals of France went about everywhere looking for a passage, and they reported that it was nowhere possible to open a road without exposing the army to loss, so well all the approaches to the place, by sea and land, were guarded by the English. The Pope's two legates, who had accompanied King Philip, tried in vain to open negotiations. Philip sent four knights to the King of England to urge him to appoint a place where a battle might be fought, without advantage on either side. But, sirs, answered Edward, I have been here nigh upon a year, and have been at heavy charges by it, and having done so much, that before long I shall be master of Calais. I will by no means retard my conquest, which I have so much desired. Let mine adversary and his people find out a way, as they please, to fight me. Other testimony would have us believe that Edward accepted Philip's challenge, and that it was the king of France who raised fresh difficulties in consequence of which the proposed battle did not take place. François's account, however, seems the more truth-like in itself, and more in accordance with the totality of facts however that may be whether it were actual powerlessness or want of spirit both on the part of the french army and of the king philip on the second of august thirteen forty seven took the road back to amiens and dismissed all those who had gone with him men-at-arms and common folk when the people of calais saw that all hope of a rescue had slipped from them they held a council and resigned themselves to offer submission to the king of england rather than die of hunger and begged their governor, John de Vienne, to enter into negotiations for that purpose with the besiegers. Walter de Mani, instructed by Edward to reply to those overtures, said to John de Vienne, "'The king's intent is, that ye put yourselves at his free will to ransom or put to death such as it shall please him. The people of Calais have caused him so great displeasure, cost him so much money, and lost him so many men, that it is not astonishing if that weighs heavily upon him.' "'Sir Walter,' answered John de Vienne, It would be too hard a matter for us if we were to consent to what you say. There are within here but a small number of us knights and squires who have loyally served our lord, the king of France, even as you would serve yours in like case. But we would suffer greater evils than ever men have had to endure, rather than consent that the meanest prentice-boy or varlet of the town should have other evil than the greatest of us. We pray you be pleased to return to the king of England, and pray him to have pity upon us, and you will do us courtesy.' By my faith, answered Walter de Mani, I will do it willingly, Sir John, and I would that, by God's help, the king might be pleased to listen to me. And the brave English knight reported to the king the prayer of the French knights in Calais, saying, My lord, Sir John de Vienne told me that they were in very sore extremity and famine, but that rather than surrender all to your will, to live or die as it might please you, they would sell themselves so dearly as never did men-at-arms. I will do no otherwise than I have said, answered the king. My lord, replied Walter, you will perchance be wrong, for you will give us a bad example. If you should be pleased to send us to defend any of your fortresses, we should of a surety not go willingly if you have these people put to death, for thus they would do to us in like case. These words caused Edward to reflect, and the greater part of the English barons came to the aid of Walter de Mani. Sirs, said the king, I would not be all alone against you all. Go, Walter, to them of Calais, and say to the governor that the greatest grace they can find in my sight is that six of the most notable burghers come forth from the town, bareheaded, barefooted, with ropes around their necks, and with the keys of the town and castle in their hands. With them I will do accordingly to my will, and the rest I will receive to mercy. My lord, said Walter, I will do it willingly. He returned to Calais, where John de Vienne was awaiting him, and reported the king's decision. The governor immediately left the ramparts, went to the marketplace, and had the bell rung to assemble the people. At sound of the bell men and women came hurrying up, hungering for news, as was natural for people so hard-pressed by famine that they could not hold out any longer. John de Vienne then repeated to them what he had just been told, adding that there was no other way, and that they would have to make short answer. On this they fell a-weeping and crying out so bitterly that no heart in the world, however hard, could have seen and heard them without pity. Even John de Vienne shed tears. Then rose up to his feet the richest burgher of the town, Eustace de Saint-Pierre, who at the former council had been for capitulation. "'Sir,' said he, "'it would be great pity to leave this people to die, by famine or otherwise, when any remedy can be found against it. And he who should keep them from such a mishap would find great favour in the eyes of our lord.' I have great hope to find favor in the eyes of our lord if I die to save this people. I would fain be the first herein, and I will willingly place myself in my shirt and bareheaded and with a rope around my neck at the mercy of the king of England at this speech men and women cast themselves at the feet of Eustace de Saint Pierre, weeping piteously. Another right honorable burgher who had great possessions and two beautiful damsels for daughters rose up and said that he would act comrade to Eustace de Saint Pierre his name was john dare then for the third james de vissant a rich man in personality and realty then his brother peter de vissant and then the fifth and sixth of whom none has told the names on the fifth of august thirteen forty seven these six burghers thus apparelled with cords round their necks and each with a bunch of the keys of the city and of the castle were conducted outside the gates by john de vienne who rode a small hackney for he was in such ill plight that he could not go afoot "'He gave them up to Sir Walter, who was awaiting him, and said to him, "'As captain of Calais I deliver to you, with the consent of the poor people of the town, "'these six burghers, who are, I swear to you, the most honourable and notable in person, "'in fortune, and in ancestry, in the town of Calais. "'I pray you be pleased to pray the King of England that these good folks be not put to death. "'I know not,' answered De Manny, "'what my lord the King may mean to do with them, "'but I promise you that I will do mine ability.' When Sir Walter brought in the six burghers in this condition, King Edward was in his chamber with a great company of earls, barons, and knights. As soon as he heard that the folks of Calais were there as he had ordered, he went out and stood in the open space before his hostel, and all those lords with him, and even Queen Philippa of England, who was with child, followed the king her lord. He gazed most cruelly on those six poor men, for he had his heart possessed with so much rage that at first he could not speak. When he spoke, he commanded them to be straightway beheaded. All the barons and knights who were there prayed him to show them mercy. "'Gentle sir,' said Walter de Manny, "'restrain your wrath. You have renown for gentleness and nobleness. Be pleased to do naught whereby it may be diminished. If you have not pity on yonder folk, all others will say that it was cruelty on your part to put to death these six honorable burghers, who of their own free will have put themselves at your mercy to save the others.' the king gnashed his teeth saying sir walter hold your peace let them fetch hither my headsmen the people of calais have been the death of so many of my men that it is but meet that yon fellows die also then with great humility the noble queen who was very nigh her delivery threw herself on her knees at the feet of the king saying ah gentle sir if as you know i have asked nothing of you from the time that i crossed the sea in great peril i pray you humbly that as a special boon for the sake of holy mary's son and for the love of me You will please to have mercy on these six men. The king did not speak at once, and fixed his eyes on the good dame, his wife, who was weeping piteously on her knees. She softened his stern heart, for he would have been loath to vex her in the state in which she was, and he said to her, Ha! dame, I had much rather you had been elsewhere than here, but you pray me such prayers that I dare not refuse you, and though it irks me much to do so, there, I give them up to you, do with them as you will." "'Thanks, hearty thanks, my lord,' said the good queen. Then she rose up and raised up the six burghers, had the ropes taken off their necks, and took them with her to her chamber, where she had fresh clothes and dinner brought to them. Afterwards she gave them six nobles apiece, and had them let out of the host in all safety. Edward was choleric and stern in his collar, but judicious and politic. He had sense enough to comprehend the impressions exhibited around him, and to take them into account.' he had yielded to the free-spoken representations of walter de mani and the soft entreaties of his royal wife when he was master of calais he did not suffer himself to be under any illusion as to the sentiments of the population he had conquered and without excluding the french from the town he took great care to mingle with them an english population he had allowed a free passage to the poor calaisians driven out by famine he now fetched from london thirty-six burghers of position and three hundred others of inferior condition with their wives and children, and he granted to the town thus depeopled and repeopled all such municipal and commercial privileges as were likely to attract new inhabitants thither. But at the same time he felt what renown and importance a devotion like that of the six burghers of Calais could not fail to confer upon such men, and not only did he trouble himself to get them back to their own hearths, but on the 8th of October, 1347, two months after the surrender of Calais, he gave Eustace de Saint-Pierre a considerable pension, on account of the good services he was to render in the town by maintaining good order there, and he reinstated him, him and his heirs, in possession of the properties that had belonged to him. Eustace, more concerned for the interests of his own town than for those of France, and being more of a Calaisian burgher than a national patriot, showed no hesitation, for all that appears, in accepting this new fashion of serving his native city, for which he had shown himself so ready to die. He lived four years as a subject of the King of England. At his death, which happened in 1351, his heirs declared themselves faithful subjects of the King of France, and Edward confiscated away from them the possessions he had restored to their predecessor. Eustace de Saint-Pierre's cousin and comrade in devotion to their native town, John Dare, would not enter Calais again. His property was confiscated, and his house, the finest, it is said, in the town, was given by King Edward to Queen Philippa, who showed no more hesitation in accepting it than Eustace in serving his new king. Long-lived delicacy of sentiment and conduct was rarer in those rough and rude times than heroic bursts of courage and devotion. Philip of Valois tried to afford some consolation and supply some remedy for the misfortunes of the Calaisians banished from their town. He secured to them exemption from certain imposts, no matter whither they removed, and the possession of all property and inheritance that might fall to them and he promised to confer upon them all vacant offices which it might suit them to fill but it was not in his gift to repair even superficially and in appearance the evils he had not known how to prevent or combat to any purpose the outset of his reign had been brilliant and prosperous but his victory at cashel over the flemings brought more cry than wool he had vanity enough to flaunt it rather than wit enough to turn it to account he was a prince of courts, and tournaments, and trips, and galas, whether regal or plebeian. He was volatile, imprudent, haughty, and yet frivolous, brave without ability, and despotic without anything to show for it. The battle of Crecy and the loss of Calais were reverses from which he never even made a serious attempt to recover. He hastily concluded with Edward a truce, twice renewed, which served only to consolidate the victor's successes. A calamity of European extent came as an addition to the distresses of France. From 1347 to 1349 a frightful disease, brought from Egypt and Syria through the ports of Italy, and called the Black Plague, or the Plague of Florence, ravaged Western Europe, especially Provence and Languedoc, where it carried off, they say, two-thirds of the inhabitants. Machiavelli and Boccaccio have described with all the force of their genius the material and moral effects of this terrible plague. The court of France suffered particularly from it, and the famous object of Petrarch's tender sonnets, Laura de Nove, married to Hugh de Sade, fell victim to it at Avignon. When the epidemic had well-nigh disappeared, the survivors, men and women, princes and subjects, returned passionately to their pleasures and their galas. To mortality, says a contemporary chronicler, succeeded a rage for marriage, and Philip of Valois himself, now fifty-eight years of age, took for his second wife Blanche of Navarre, who was only eighteen. She was a sister of that young King of Navarre, Charles II, who was soon to get the name of Charles the Bad, and to become so dangerous an enemy for Philip's successors. Seven months after his marriage, and on the 22nd of August, 1350, Philip died at nogent le roi in the Haute-Marne, strictly enjoining his son John to maintain with vigour his well-ascertained right to the crown he wore, and leaving his people bowed down beneath a weight of extortions so heavy that the like had never been seen in the kingdom of france only one happy event distinguished the close of this reign as early as thirteen forty three philip had treated on a monetary basis with humbert the second count and dauphin of viennes for the cession of that beautiful province to the crown of france after the death of the then possessor humbert an adventurous and fantastic prince plunged in 1346 into a crusade against the Turks, from which he returned in the following year without having obtained any success. Tired of seeking adventures as well as of reigning, he, on the 16th of July, 1349, before a solemn assembly held at Lyon, abdicated his principality in favor of Prince Charles of France, grandson of Philip of Valois, and afterwards Charles V. The new Dauphin took the oath, between the hands of the Bishop of Grenoble, to maintain the liberties, franchises, and privileges of the Dauphine, and the ex-Dauphin, after having taken holy orders and passed successively through the archbishopric of Rheims and the bishopric of Paris, both of which he found equally unpalatable, he went to die at Clermont in Auvergne, in a convent belonging to the order of Dominicans, whose habit he had donned. End of chapter 20